This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming from Utah this week and host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal of K-12 education at all levels. Greetings, folks. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Snowbound, New York today. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. And we invite you to join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Greetings, Jethro. Well, hello, Fred. I do want to start out by saying that we are going to have, uh, we're offering a content warning here to let you know that we are going to be talking about sensitive subjects. So if you have Uh, kids in the room, you may want to listen to this first and then possibly talk with them about it because we do encourage talking with kids early on about this kind of stuff with sexting and child pornography. Yes, indeed. And uh, given the fact that we've had several guests over the last couple of weeks talk about this issue, we decided that it would be a good thing to do a factual slash legal overview of Mm. what sexting is, what the risks are, and most importantly, what children and educators and parents need to know about this phenomenon. So hopefully people will find this a useful thing. Yeah, and I I do think that it's an important thing to talk about. And as a principal, I dealt with this in many different ways, and I'm excited to share some of those stories, of course, while still respecting people's privacy and, and not giving away enough to 
help anybody pinpoint where it's happening, but it's definitely a real issue. And it's not just a real issue today, but it's actually been going on for a long time. So we want to take just a couple of minutes here first and talk about some of the history and background around this kind of information. And uh, Fred is obviously the expert on this, having written uh, multiple books about it, starting with Obscene Profits all the way back in the year 2000, and then the Decency Wars uh, in 2006, where he was also on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And we're going to put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes today so you can learn about that. And then also he wrote the book Cybertraps for the Young. So he covers all of these things and has for, for many years. And so in thinking about that, what what is it that we need to understand first about this problem that we're currently facing, Fred? Well, um, that's a great summary, Jethro, of some of the work that I've done. And of course, more recently with Cybertraps for Educators, we've explored how this spills over into the schools, right? Which is what, mm-hmm. what you dealt with. But yep. real quickly, because we have a lot of uh, kind of practical information to get to, but the background is important for parents to understand that when you look at image capturing technology, basically from photography in the 1840s all the way to the present, pretty much every technology that captures images at some point has been used to take nude photos of people. Um, What is different about the current situation is that when the mobile phone was introduced and picture taking became a possibility right around 2000 uh, with the introduction of the first popular Sanyo phone, nobody really anticipated that kids would start taking photos of themselves. That's the big change that's really occurred. Um, Maybe some of that occurred in the 70s when Polaroid brought out the, uh, was it the land camera with the self-developing things? I'm sure some kids experimented with that. Um, Home movies, VHS in the 80s. You know, kids got their hands on that stuff for sure. But the change, the magnitude of the problem, the issue, is dramatically greater now because so many kids are carrying these devices which are really designed to facilitate photography, video recording, and so on and so forth. And then on top of that, and this is another aspect of the writing that I do, we've got a situation where there's a really challenging combination of popular culture and social media. And so kids are seeing their role models, whether it's, you know, Miley Cyrus or Chrissy Teigen or whoever else. And believe me, I don't want to even begin to date myself by (laughs) trying to come up with, you know, the actual people that kids follow. But I do know, at least on a superficial level, that stars like using Twitter, they like using Instagram, they like using Pinterest to put themselves out there. I mean, being a celebrity is a branding exercise. And sexuality is a piece of that, of course. And so kids are really seeing these behaviors being modeled. You know, and you, you know, you have relatively young kids. I'm sure you think about this as an issue and in terms of what they're seeing and how it affects their behavior. Well, the interesting thing is that my kids have just recently started asking about um who specific artists are and who um, different celebrities are. So they're just starting to pay attention. So like they're, they're noticing that one person plays a character in a movie and they're in another Mm. movie. And, um, and, and it's really interesting to see how that, how that comes about. And, um, 
and it's easy to think that if we are just looking at, you know, our our society as a whole, it's easy to think that, you know, we're just going downhill, which is something that you've been writing about for a long time, depending on how you define downhill, right? Sure, and so sure. um, so there are laws about uh, child pornography and different things like that. So what do we, what do the laws say about this kind of um, stuff? And are they caught up to the technologies that we're using today? Well, I can answer that easily and say no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's not only that they're not caught up to the technology; they're not caught up to the changes in behavior in our society, and and we'll get into that. But let's back up real quickly, and we'll only do a few minutes on this because this is not a legal seminar. People are more than happy to contact me if they want the legal <laughs> seminar. But but this is just a real quick overview, and there's a bunch of stuff that will be in the show notes if people want to follow up on this. But Real quickly, the the challenge that parents and educators face is that the phenomenon of a person under the age of 18 taking a photo of themselves is not merely a social or family issue. It's a legal issue. And the reason for that is that under federal law and under state law, those photos are generally considered to be within the category defined as child pornography. And the thing about that that parents need to realize, and educators as well, obviously, is that there are very strict mandatory minimums with respect to the handling of child pornography images. So for instance, um, all of this, by the way, is codified at 18 U.S. Code uh, chapter 110, if anybody really wants to nerd out on this. But, you know, nerd alert, instance, nerd alert. Nerd alert. <laughs> that's, that's a constant warning for me. Um, so one provision is sexual exploitation of a child in a performance. Again, this all include this all covers photography, video recording, etc. If you are responsible for producing that image, you face a mandatory minimum of 15 years in federal prison, with a maximum of 30. If you produce, um, distribute, receive, or possess the material, it's a mandatory minimum of five years up to 20 years. So these things are treated very seriously by federal prosecutors, and every single state basically has matching laws. And frankly, um, a lot of the teen issues that I've seen over the years have been handled at the state level. And as you might expect, Jethro, there are states that are very conservative about these kinds of things. And there have been instances in which teenagers have been prosecuted for exchanging these things. And this is where we get into the changes changes in behavior, right? Because I don't think many parents would disagree that kids explore their sexuality as they start to enter into their teen years. And they're trying to figure out what their bodies are doing and what it means for them as individuals, you know, soon to be adults. And so, you know, we laugh about the concept of playing doctor, right? You know, you're kind of checking out the opposite sex or yourself to figure out what's going on. What's different about this is that now kids are recording that exploration and sharing it with others. And so now they're actually engaging in a crime, when they do that. And, and that's that's the real implication. 
and engaging in a crime that they have no idea the seriousness of it or what it what it means. And they're not just because we typically don't talk about this stuff with kids, but also because it is um, it's just not something that they would ever think of that something they're doing in the privacy of their own home uh, just with themselves could then be considered a, a federal crime, not just a, a state crime also, depending on how it's transmitted and where it's transmitted to. So, um, so one of the things that I heard as a principal was it's not a big deal because I'm just taking a picture of myself. I'm not harming anybody else because I'm not taking a picture of anybody else. So how, how does that figure into it? Or is it okay to take pictures of yourself? <laughs> well, from a strictly legal perspective, to answer that question, um, neither federal nor state laws have what are called selfie exceptions. <laughs> so technically speaking, you know, and this is a very lawyer-esque answer, technically speaking, if you're a 17-year-old boy and you take a photo of yourself standing nude in front of a mirror, you have created child pornography. So yes, you, you have committed a crime. And, and I think that's one of the things that we need to figure out how to balance this stuff. Because honestly, in the mid-70s and late-70s, the child pornography statutes were adopted across the country to deal with predatory older people taking advantage of children, which is really the intent of these laws. These laws were not designed to deal with the growing exploration of an adolescent's body by the adolescent, you know, so that's a, that's a really challenging thing. It, parents should be aware that there are states that have what are called Romeo and Juliet exceptions to the child pornography laws. And I worked on one of these a little bit up in Vermont when I was living up there. And the basic concept of the um, Romeo and Juliet exception is that the state recognizes that teens will do this and basically says, if it's consensual, and the teens are within a certain age range of each other, then it's diverted to juvenile court. And there's no record. Basically, there's an educational process and so forth. Um, those laws don't apply very specifically to situations in which there's coercion. And that's a huge part of this. You remember we had Jeff Temple on a little while ago, Yeah, right? exactly. And he was talking about the relationship. What is the power dynamic that's involved in this exploration. So if you have a couple of teenagers who are 17 and 16 or something like that, and they're trying to figure out not just their own bodies, but also their handling of relationships, and this is part of that for them, mm -hmm. that doesn't feel like a crime, right? That's, right. That's just, that's in the context of the relationship. Yeah, and that's that's part of where the challenge comes in is because we don't know exactly what coercion means um, as kids, and it's even hard for us to define as adults. And so, having those different um, uh, circumstances that you know, if if somebody asks me to do something and I don't really want to do it, but then I do it because I love them, then is that coercion? And that line gets really blurry really fast. It really does, Jethro. And I think one of the things, um, my next book after the rise of the digital mob is hashtag tech sick masculinity, which is the impact <laughs> of technology on men and maleness. And, you know, you can't write that book without being aware, obviously, of the impact of technology on women. But there's a meta analysis here, which is that 
you know, to what extent do women feel, or young women especially, who are still maturing and, and developing their sense of identity and confidence, to what extent do they feel pressured by the society as a whole, right, in terms of how women are observed or how they interact in this technological world? These are these are challenging questions. Well, and it's interesting because I'm thinking about the the Super Bowl that happened yesterday and the halftime show that was very non-sexual. So thank you, The weekend, for doing that. And the one last... Inscrutable, but non-sexual. Yes. <laughs> the one last year was Shakira and Jennifer Lopez, who um, there was an uproar about their... Um, their sexuality in that and how sexual that was. But then the year before was Adam Levine from Maroon 5, who was, um, you know, had his shirt off and was dancing around more naked than the women were. And, you know, that wasn't as near as much a problem as, uh, as Shakira and Jennifer Lopez were the following year. Well, and you were kind of, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's just totally, it's totally different for boys and girls. And, and we need to start having those conversations early so that they understand that it's totally different. It's absolutely true. And and you were kind enough to mention the decency wars when we got started. That book was inspired by the 2004 halftime show, which you may well remember Justin Timberlake, you know, revealed uh, uh, Janet Jackson's uh, chest and the disparate part of one of the things I read about in that book was the disparate treatment of those two stars after that event. I mean, Jackson's career hit a real valley for a number of years after that, and she's climbed out of it to her credit. But Timberlake was essentially unaffected by being the actual actor who caused the reveal. So yeah, there's there's profound issues. Um, I think that there's only one other point we should make with respect to the law. And then let's move on to the various practical pieces for all of this. Um, in terms of these Romeo and Juliet exceptions and so forth, one of the things that um, parents should keep in mind is that not only if there is coercion, does that get rid of the exception, but also if there is some behavior that might constitute what some people refer to as revenge porn, or what I prefer to refer to as electronic sexual assault. And that's an instance where somebody receives an image and then without consent shares it somewhere else. And again, we're getting back to the relationship, the idea of consent and so forth. I wrote an article about this, making the argument for electronic sexual assault as a term uh, about five years ago. If anybody wants to read it, the quickest way to go is to link.cybertraps.com backslash ESA. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. And that'll help people understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, um, and I think that is a really important differentiation that um, revenge porn and electronic sexual assault change the, the impact of that on the person who shares it. Revenge porn sounds like I got hurt and now I'm sharing something because I'm hurt. And electronic sexual assault sounds like I'm trying to assault someone else. And there's a big difference between those two, those two feelings associated with those words. You know, Jethro, I don't think I've ever framed it quite that well. <laughs> that's actually really excellent. Yes, yeah, that's, that's why we're a good team. <laughs> indeed. I want the I want the focus to be on the person who 
misacts, who who mm-hmm. causes subsequent harm, and and that that's why to me it does feel very assaultive. And you know, you can extend that concept to other things like voyeurism, when somebody puts a hidden camera, that mm-hmm. is a form of electronic sexual assault, or someone who, without consent, takes an image of a minor. You know, yeah. same general thing. So we can we can have a separate conversation about that later. Let's talk a little bit though about varying kinds of legal risks for three different groups. So we've got children, and we've mm-hmm. covered some of that already. And then educators and school administrators who really need to know what they're doing. Yeah. And then parents and whatever order you want to do those in. Yeah. Well, let's start with children and then go to parents and then uh, administrators and, and educators. Because I think, first of all, we need to we need to think about our children and help them understand that when they are creating something like this, they are putting themselves in in a real difficult situation that could change their lives forever and they don't even know it. Right. And I want to start by sharing a story of a um of a of a student at one of my schools where uh these two boys were um were hanging out on the weekend and they decided to make a little movie which is amazing and awesome and something that we encourage kids to do all the time and these boys instead of making just a normal movie they made a movie about uh invading someone's privacy and uh sharing what they were doing in the bathroom with other people and uh and it it really quickly turned into this uncomfortable awkward very not appropriate thing for school and and what i as I was talking to these kids about it, what I tried to emphasize is by you creating that, you are you are setting yourself up for um, legal ramifications that that you can't even comprehend right now. That could include jail time. That could include um, being labeled as a sexual uh, predator for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And you know these are things that you're doing when you're not. Um, Oh, even old enough to vote, you know, and, right. and you're, you're having these awful experiences. And I think that that, um, that conversation, they had never thought about it like that. They were just being funny and having fun. And that was it. Right. And, and what you're touching on, which we've talked about many times is, you know, 15 years ago, they wouldn't have been able to do that. Right. Without a great deal more effort. Yo, I'm going to bring in dad's 15 pound VHS camera mm-hmm. into the bathroom. It's not easy, you know, yeah. but now every single one of those kids can pull out a phone with better resolution, better recording capability and so forth, which is one of the reasons I think that we've talked about the idea of slowing down the handing out of technology to kids, that mm-hmm. that's the key thing because the younger these kids are, the more likely they are to honestly make a bad decision because they don't have the judgment that they need mm-hmm. at that age. And so uh, hopefully that's something we can get across. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I, I know an adult who is like 50 years old and when they were like 20, they uh, had sex with a 17 year old that they thought was 20 and mm-hmm. they um, they got in trouble for it. And to this day, they are still registered as a sex offender. Um, and there's pretty much nothing that they can do about it now because that that big brand has been put on mm-hmm. them and there's there's no way around it, you know? And so there are websites where you can go and look up and see what s- registered sex offenders 
live around you and and this guy is on that list and he will yeah, be yeah. will be forever and and it's just it's really it's it it can be very harsh so for kids i mean you're obviously identifying one of the implications that i can say with some confidence virtually no kid thinks about mm-hmm. or is aware about um look to be fair federal prosecution of teenagers for sexting is incredibly rare. I think maybe there's been one or two instances in the decade or so I've been researching this. State prosecutions are more common, although I think they're declining. And I think part of the reason for that is that even if the law doesn't catch up with technology and with behavior, um, prosecutorial attitudes do. Which is to say, when this first came out, this was truly horrifying to prosecutors. Like, oh my God, you know, it has to be some kind of course of behavior because no rational person would do this. But then if you listen to someone like, you know, Jeff Temple is saying, yes, yeah, 70% or whatever of teenagers are doing this. This is the behavior itself is not intrinsically a crime unless there's other factors involved. So we need to start taking a more holistic relationship-based approach to how this is happening and what it means. Yeah, I, I think that's good. I think the last thing I'll say about the children, and then we can move on, is that if if we don't take that relationship approach, then we're setting them up for, for failure in relationships anyway. And so there's no harm in taking a relationship-based approach because it helps them build better relationships anyway. And when you start sharing uh, naked pictures of yourself with your boyfriend or girlfriend as you are, you know, under 18, then you're starting to also develop habits and things that that are going to follow you throughout your life. And, you know, each family can make their decision about whether or not that's appropriate as you're an adult. But certainly as a kid, it's not appropriate and definitely not something that you should be doing. And a lot of kids won't know where to turn to get help from this. Um, especially if they're being shamed in their family, school, church, whatever community they're in, they're not going to know who to turn to when they do make these, uh, take these steps and not know how to get back and make better choices. Great way to put it, Jethro. And the other piece before we move on to parents that's worth keeping in mind is that for young children, it's difficult to know where to draw the line, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, one topless photo is not the end of the world, but if that then segues into more explicit images or actual sexual behavior, and there is a correlation between the practice of sexting and sexual activity, well, then, you know, does does the child have the maturity and wisdom to know what is no longer comfortable in terms of their behavior? And that, that I think, is, is the relationship piece. And I know that these are difficult conversations for parents. I've been through this with my own kids. And I will tell you that the minute a child is given a device that is capable of taking a photograph, these conversations have to start, you know, in terms of relationships, in terms of boundaries, in terms of legal consequences. Because the reality is that if a child has the capability, there is a non-zero chance that they will do it. Not a guarantee, but it's not out of the realm of possibility anymore. So that that's the responsibility for parents. Yeah. Even if your child is getting this device from school, as they probably did during the pandemic, 
these conversations still need to happen. The school may have filtering software and they may have a bunch of stuff put on there to, to help prevent it. But the reality is you still need to have the conversation. And I think that the important thing to note here is that the earlier you have this conversation, the better. So even though it's uncomfortable and you don't want to tell your kids that these things happen, it, it's not like you're putting the idea in their mind. They're, they're going to start thinking about it sooner or later. And so if you can at least talk about it first, then that's going to be good. So you want to talk, you know, first have a frank conversation, talk about potential consequences, not just the, you know, you could go to jail forever because kids don't really care about that because they don't think it'll happen to them. And they don't believe it, right? And they don't believe it. But also talk about the consequences as it relates to relationships, about self-esteem, about your own self-value. Those are really important. And then establish and review regularly the rules about sexting and dating and texting and sexual behavior and all that kind of stuff so that you're saying that, talking about that early rather than waiting until there's an incident to have the conversation about it. If you're having this conversation because you found sexting photos on your child's phone, you're way out of the gate <laughs> <Yeah>. too late. <laughs> yes. Um, and and look, this always this does bring us to one thing that is uh, near and dear to my heart, which is the concept of privacy, right? And you know, I I think that parents generally try to give their children space to develop their own personalities, to you know, figure out what their identity is as they're getting older and approaching adulthood and so forth. But given the consequences that can flow from some of these behaviors, parents always need a reminder that children have no expectation of privacy with respect to a device that the parents purchased and for which they are providing the data plan. That is true not only within the context of the family, that is true as a matter of law. That if a child were to use a mobile device in some way to cause harm, the parents could potentially be liable for that because they are considered to be the guardians of the child and responsible for their behavior. And so, yes, children will vigorously object, many will vigorously object to having their phones periodically examined, but it is something that parents should do until they're completely confident that the values that they feel as a family have been absorbed by the child. Yeah, and, and that's an area where I know in working as a principal, I've seen many parents who shy away from and say, well, that's my kid's phone and I don't want to you know, impose. And I've had other parents on the other end of the spectrum who say what you said, you have no expectation of privacy. This phone goes in my, in my uh, hands at the end of every day. And I go through everything that I can tell that you've done and look through all your stuff. And, you know, even that is not enough because you have to have the conversation. And again, if you have to find something, you're, you're too late <laughs> to prevent it. You're now just working on cleanup and that, that is a big issue as well. And one of the things I want to talk about is this idea of if if you find images of another child on your child's device, what do you do with that as a parent? Are you required to report? How do you how do you suggest people handle that? And I've got a couple of thoughts on that too. Yeah, I mean, let's 
I think actually the right sequence here because you <laughs> had to deal with this as a principal on the front lines is I can start off with the legal piece and then I'd love to hear hear your thoughts on that. Um, again, no selfie exception, no parental exception for child mm-hmm. pornography laws um, in federal or state laws at all. So parents have the same legal risk and exposure that anyone else would. And, you know, there are still details to be sorted out, but the recent incident involving Kellyanne Conway and her yeah, daughter Claudia wow. is is a huge object lesson for parents on the risks associated with all of this. And in brief, from what I understand. Yeah, explain some, a little bit. I will explain a little <laughs> bit. And, and, and again, this may be subject to revision <laughs> at some point in the future, but from what I understand, um, Kelly Ann Conway at some point discovered a nude or partially nude photo that her daughter Claudia had taken. And she, Kelly Ann, saved it to her phone, apparently as part of some disciplinary effort, you know, with her daughter. They've had a very contentious relationship, at least as far as we can tell. And public. Exceedingly public, because... You know, Claudia has made aggressive use of TikTok and some of these other platforms to complain about her mother, you know, driven in part by her mother's political views, et cetera. So anyway, at some point, Kellyanne apparently had this photo of her daughter on her phone. And Kellyanne Conway then created what's called a fleet. And a fleet um, is a... It's it's like a, a Facebook story, but it's done for Twitter. An ephemeral picture or posting on Twitter that it's goes ephemeral, away. Right. It's an ephemeral posting. Typically, it's um, it lasts a day. So you can add photos to your fleets and people can view them. You, you, you might do like a photo every hour and show the course of your day or something like that. So, you know, relatively benign thing except she apparently accidentally included this photo of her daughter in her fleet. And it was very rapidly taken down, but not rapidly enough to avoid, you know, the capturing or attention of people literally around the world. So let's assume for the moment that those facts are correct while acknowledging that there may be revision at some point. And we're not putting anybody on trial here, right? So. This is purely for uh, discussion purposes. Number one, you have to know how your technology works. Number two, this is a classic cyber trap incident, right? Because it is the unintended consequence arising from the use or misuse of digital devices. But from a legal perspective, again, assuming this is correct, you you could argue that Kellyanne Conway was in violation of the federal prohibition against the possession of child pornography. She also distributed it to a worldwide audience. So there are very serious consequences that can result from this. All of that being said, um, no, you should not keep nude photos of your children, period, full stop, end of discussion. <laughs> they should be deleted. They should be disposed of. You should have, you, you can use them as the basis of a great conversation with your children about what the implications of that are, but they are contraband. They, they are contraband items under federal and state law. So that's for your own kids. 
the, the much more challenging situation is if a parent sees a nude image of another child on their child's phone. And this is where I think you step in. Well, I, I certainly have some experience in this, unfortunately, but what I have found is that um, I think parents find a lot more than they report certainly to the school mm-hmm. and that they find a lot more than they report to other parents. And I, I've mediated several conversations between parents where they have explained that they found a nude picture of their child on on their own child's phone. And, and it's very awkward to say the least, especially when you don't know what the moral values of the other person are, because they may say, well, this is totally fine. I don't have a problem with it, even if it is against the law and something that you shouldn't be doing. So one, do you have a duty to report as a parent? I would say you have a duty to your child and to the other child to bring it to light and whether that means reporting it to the police or reporting it to the other parents or reporting it to the school, if it happened there, or if the school is involved somehow, um, I think you have a duty to the children to bring it up. And it's not enough to just say, hey, I text somebody and say, hey, I found a picture. Certainly don't send it. But um, <laughs> because people have done that and they're like, I found this picture of your kid on my daughter's phone. And that, and now it's sent. And as we learned from Awo Omenya last week, that every time you share it, then you re-victimize that person all over again. And and that's just violate, right. You violate federal distribution laws. Right. So certainly don't do that. But I really believe you have a duty to the children to bring it to light and deal with it. And that doesn't mean that we need to give the kids um, you know, throw them in jail or suspend them from school or whatever the case may be. Certainly don't suspend them from school because then they're gonna have a lot more time to do this kind of stuff. So that's a bad idea. <laughs> but well, there's the voice of experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so well look, you know, I think that this is a tricky, tricky area because in terms of a parent's own potential criminal liability, there is a safe harbor with respect to these kinds of images, um, but only if they're reported to the police. And that can be very problematic depending on what jurisdiction you're in. And because we're going to segue into educators and administrators now, if you get the school involved in some states, most states actually, the school officials or the teachers are mandatory reporters. And this is behavior which actually requires administrators and teachers to report to the police or to child services or what have you, depending on your state. So it's it's a very delicate area to deal with. My recommendation would be to consult with an attorney. That, you know, again, I don't want to make this the Attorney Full Employment Act, but it is important to have legal advice to understand what your potential exposure is as a parent. Um, and again, it may be if there's just if it's just a one-off, it may be picking up the phone and calling the other parent and saying, okay, our kids are experimenting. We all we all need to be in the know and we're going to delete them is a reasonable outcome. But if it's more than that, then it becomes a delicate issue. Yeah, for sure. So let's transition into uh, school administrators and teachers. And um, let me just state my policy as a school administrator right from the beginning. Um, 
I never wanted to see evidence that kids had these pictures. So first and foremost, it was always delete them if you have them. And if I see them, then I want to watch you delete them. Because if I have to see it, then I want to make sure that it's deleted off the phone and also go into the recently deleted and delete it from there as well. Um, And even still, you know, there may be a cloud backup somewhere or something like that, but man, I don't ever want to see them. And so every time I had the opportunity um, to, to deal with the kid in this situation, I would say, do you have it on your phone right now? Okay. Take out your phone, delete it. I don't want to see it. I just want you to have it off of there. And then I want to see your camera roll afterward and see that it's not there. So I don't want to see it. I want it to be deleted. Mm -hmm. And some people um, said, well, Jethro, that's destroying evidence. And that's, you know, that's not appropriate for you to, to do that because this could be used in, in police, you know, following up on a crime of some sort. And that very well may be the case. But, um, and if that happens, I hope I don't, nobody comes back and tries to do this to me. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said that, but you know, I, it's much better that that person is not re-victimized and that that image is not shared. And we can just take people's word for it, that it existed and, and have the conversation at that point. I, 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 I guess I, I would say, I hear what you're saying. And I, <laughs> I, com- I completely understand your perspective on this. Um, I, I will say that that is a very fact-specific situation mm-hmm. in terms of what your potential exposure or any administrator's potential exposure might be. Because if, in fact, it turned out that there was an issue of electronic sexual assault, then instructing a student to destroy an image mm-hmm. could be interpreted as obstruction of justice, which is a separate crime altogether. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the very Nixonian thing, right? It wasn't the break-in, it was the cover-up that actually right. was the problem. So, you know, this, I think, brings us to one of the chapters that I did for Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, because there's a uh, former Virginia um, vice principal named uh, Ting Yi Wei, who uh, basically became a national name for a brief period of time because he was investigating one of the earliest sexting cases that I ran across back in 2004, 2005, something like that. Mm -hmm. And he asked a student whether anything was going on because the principal had told Mr. Way to do an investigation and nobody knew anything about cell phones or, or this stuff way back then. And he asked a kid who he thought would know something, and the kid did. And the kid actually had the photo in question on his phone. And so Mr. Way said, I don't know how to use your phone. I don't know how to do any of this. Can you email that to me on my phone? No. And then he said, well, how do I get this on my computer so I can send it to the principal? And he handed his phone to the student and told the student to get it onto his computer. And long story short, the Loudoun County DA decided to make an example of Mr. Way and prosecute him for possession of child pornography. And eventually, you know, like three years later, charges were dropped. The The school board had to write a $615,000 check to Mr. Way for legal fees, yada, yada. But the point was that nobody knew what how to handle this stuff and didn't realize the risks 
that taking possession of these images exposes you to child pornography charges. So there's that. A couple of other things that I think, you know, we can dismiss with fairly quickly is, you know, this idea of, um, you know, you're a position, someone in a position of being a principal or something like that often does get handed a device that has nude images on it because, you know, you want to take control of it. You want to figure out what's going on. Obviously, one thing an administrator should not do is make a collection of those photos for their own purposes. And I have a couple of cases in my research files where people have actually done that. And needless to say, that's a huge violation of trust. It's a massive criminal offense, um, you know, and, and people logically get prosecuted for that. Yeah, and I think the, so in the situations where that did happen to me, um, I essentially treated that as like in uh, like a piece of evidence, a physical piece right. of evidence where I put it in a sealed envelope and I didn't do anything with it until I was in the presence of either law enforcement or the parents who had control of that phone. And then I would proceed with that piece. And absolutely with, right. with things related to, um, and not just sexting, but drugs and alcohol use and, um, the things about buying drugs and things like that, those were also things where I treated it in that same manner. And so, um, you know, in, as you mentioned, in the case of, uh, sexual assault, electronic sexual assault, um, in those situations, to be clear, I would not tell kids to delete that if that's mm -hmm. what it was. And in that situation, then I would involve law enforcement and would have them keep it until law enforcement could arrive. Just, just to clarify that I was no, talking I, at first about the exploration piece that we had totally, talked about previously. Totally so noted, uh, <laughs> Mr. Jones. No, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's an important distinction. Yeah. And, and look, this is, this is the, this is the, you know, look, this is the social change, right. That we are confronting like for administrators and educators, you know, there may be an, an awareness that teen sexual behavior is different than what we experienced when we were teens. And that's driven by technology. And so we as adults need to need to reflect on whether or not we need to change our attitudes about kids and how they're interacting with each other, but never to lose sight of the importance of the power relationship, the power dynamic, and the um, extent of consent within these relationships. This is so crucial. And, and I think that if parents want to protect their children and, and by extension, protect their administrators and their educators, we need to follow up on what you're talking about, which is to begin these conversations as early as possible so that you've got a long runway before kids are actually empowered with these devices that allow them to do this. Absolutely. And so one last story that I want to share about, and this is advice to school principals and educators, is that the kids who look like they're doing everything right and being like those model citizens, um, they, they may not be. And I'm not saying that we should be suspicious of everybody, but we have to recognize that these things are not happening in a bubble of just the kids who dress a certain way or act a certain way at school. And so having conversations uh, across your whole entire system is meaningful. And I'm not saying like 
you know, go have assemblies every week about this, but be open to the conversation, especially as you're dealing with kids who start, um, who are starting to get their own phones and talk about how we use phones at school and talk about how their parents expect them to use their phones and what conversations they're having with their parents about it. Um, so I had a situation where I was, I was going to ask a, one of my students to babysit my kids so my wife and I could go on a date. And so she somehow got involved in this group text with a bunch of other girls. And I was reading the things that she was sending from her phone as part of the investigation and the things that she was saying and the way she was acting in the text message was completely opposite of who I expected her to be based on my experiences with her at school. And it was such a wake up call to me that she, I don't, she didn't, she was not an instigator in that group. However, she was part of it and she was expressing herself in ways that mm. I would not want her to be around my kids doing that. And so it, it was just a wake up call to me that there are things that we can't really see what they're doing. And so we need to have those conversations and we need to be able to talk about it frankly and openly without consequences so that they can have the conversation and learn about it and learn how to be appropriate. And so, so tying that in, my piece of advice to administrators is to one, make sure that you're talking openly with kids about this, not in a creepy way, but in a, in an appropriate, <laughs> these are the challenges the kids are facing and how, right. how do we handle these at our school? And two, think about that relationship also it, and how they are, how, what kind of relationships they have with their peers and what's leading them to make these kind of decisions so that you're able to tell if someone's being an aggressor or a victim, or if they are doing exploration, or if they are just caught in something that they have no idea how to handle. And if you, if you get to understand where the kids are at well enough, then you can make better choices in how you have those conversations. And some kids do need to be told we're calling the police and they're coming to take care of this right now because this is this is uh, electronic sexual assault and it's not okay. And other kids need the conversation of, hey, I know you were just exploring and you can't do it anymore. Let's call on your parents and let's have a conversation about this. And there's no consequences, but we just need to talk through and make sure you're making better choices. That's right. And uh, just let me put a pin in something that at some point, Jethro, we can schedule a whole, sh a whole show on computer forensics for school districts and for educators, because that's you know directly relevant to all of this. If the police come in and they're investigating electronic sexual assault of one kind or another, they will rip apart your devices in a, in a digital fashion. Um, they're extraordinarily good at what they do. So there's that. But I think the other thing that is maybe particularly challenging for parents and for teachers is to mature themselves into the realization that their children may not make the same decisions that they do. And, and there's, a, there's a balancing act there, right? Isn't there between when that feels okay and when you just are not okay with it? Um, and that's, that's, I think, one of the toughest transitions for parents to make. Yeah. And, it, and it's different with every kid, I would argue. Some and kids, every generation. Right? Yep. Yeah. They show their their independent streak much earlier than others. And going back to that uh, Kellyanne and Claudia Conway situation, she's asserting her independence 
before she's 18 and saying, I don't agree with your political views and therefore lots of your life decisions. And, and that's a tough place to be. And so some kids may not, it may not say that until, you know, they're 30. Some kids may not, may start saying that when they're 10. And, and it's important to recognize where your kids are at and be able to make those choices that'll help them do that in a, in an appropriate and healthy way. Yeah, very good. Well, I see that our time is wrapping up. Let me put a pin in just two other items we won't have time to discuss today, which is number one, every educator should be aware of their duty to report for whatever their state is in case any of these situations implicate it. And then this should be blindingly obvious, but teachers should not be doing their own selfie taking on school grounds. And at some point we will we will discuss those those issues down the road. But yeah. they're covered in Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0. And uh, if you really want to nerd out on teacher law, that's where you go. <laughs> that's right. Very good. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. And uh, in closing, if anybody has uh, people that we should talk to or um, experts on this, we'd love to have them on the podcast and go into a deeper dive on some of these areas. So please uh, reach out to us if you have those suggestions. Excellent, excellent request. All right, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, tech-related legal issues, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cyber Traps podcast podcast, excuse me, on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And we're also now on Instagram at Cybertraps Podcast. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this. So please leave a five-star rating interview in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.